This morning's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, it if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. You ever had that experience where you're, you're low on cash? You're having trouble. Everybody's laughing there. I guess we all experience that. But you're low on cash. You're, you're having trouble figuring out how to pay for something. And then you reach into a coat pocket and you find a $20 bill that you didn't know you had. Or have you ever had the experience you're playing a game, maybe the game of Monopoly, and you go to jail and then you look down and, and you realize you have a get out of jail free card? that you didn't remember you had. Uh, or maybe it's at night and you're starting to kind of get things wrapped up for the night to go to bed and you look in the refrigerator and you realize you don't have any milk, no milk for the kids in the morning for cereal. And then you kind of walk out into the garage and happen to look in your garage refrigerator and lo and behold, you've got another gallon of milk. Or maybe daylight savings time. You know that Saturday night in the fall? When you set your clocks back, but you get to Saturday night, you forgot all about it. And then right before you're going to bed on Saturday night, you realize it's daylight savings time. And you get to set your clock back an hour and out of nowhere, you get an extra hour. Right? You wake up to something you didn't know you had. Or you wake up to something you don't remember, you didn't remember you had. That is exactly what Paul's doing here in this chapter. 
Because he ends the chapter, or he ends this middle section in verse 34 when he says, wake up from your drunken stupor. It's Paul's way of saying, wake up to what you have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've forgotten it, you don't remember, and you have this amazing resource in the resurrection of Christ. That's what he's unpacking here. What do you have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Why did Jesus rise from the dead? To overcome evil, to overcome your sin, and to overcome despair. And we're gonna look at each of these. Let's start with overcoming your sin. Beginning in verse 12, Paul addresses a problem in the Corinthian church. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. What does Paul exactly mean when he says that these Corinthians believed there was no resurrection of the dead? Well, here's what it means. They had bought into a very popular cultural belief of the day that arose out of Greek philosophy. And it went something like this, that when you die, your soul, which is immortal, returns to God. And your body, which is bad and corrupt and sinful, goes into the grave to be destroyed and annihilated. In other words, the immaterial, your, your soul is good, but you've got this kind of flesh suit on you and it's bad and it's corrupt. But guess what? One day when you die, there will be a great liberation and your soul will return to God, who's immaterial in spirit, and your body will go in the grave to be destroyed forever. What they believed about the resurrection was a reinterpreted view of it that said it was a spiritual resurrection, not bodily. Your body goes in the grave, it's bad and corrupt. It's about a spiritual resurrection and they even spiritualized Jesus' resurrection, that his wasn't bodily. That's why in this chapter, Paul goes to such great lengths to say, no, Jesus Christ really put on flesh. He's not just a spirit that appears to be flesh. That's why in verse four, as one of those statements of the gospel, he says, Jesus was buried. He really did die. We're not talking about a spiritual, spiritual resurrection here. We're talking about physical, material, bodily resurrection. Paul says, listen, if you're gonna refuse the bodily or the physical resurrection and buy into this cultural belief of the day that it's all spiritual, then there's four consequences. He says, number one, if there's no physical resurrection, then Christianity is nothing more than a man-made religion that goes on the shelf with every other philosophy of the world, every other religion of the world. It becomes nothing more than some human social construct, right? That's verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That word vain means empty. Untrue, okay? Christianity is just a made-up thing. That's the first consequence. Number two, if there's no resurrection of the dead, the apostles and disciples, including Paul, would be exposed as liars. That's what verse 15 says. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Third consequence, dead believers are lost. Believers that, that die and go into the grave, they're lost. There's nothing beyond the grave. That's verse 18. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's just nothing beyond the grave. Fourth consequence, and this is the one I want to spend some time on. You're still in your sins. Verse 17, if Christ has not been physically raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Futile means here useless. Paul's saying your faith is useless. Why? Well, remember what faith is. Faith is the instrument that connects you to Jesus. Your faith doesn't save you. The object of your faith saves you. Paul's saying, how useless would it be for you to be connected to a dead man in a grave? Paul, in one of his other letters to the Romans, he says this in Romans 10, 9 to 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Paul here is making a powerful connection between the resurrection of Christ and your justification. Now, what is justification? It is that one-time act where God forgives your sin, removes your sin, and gives you or imputes to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is not enough for your sin to be forgiven. I'll say it this way. Forgiveness of sin is not enough for you to be in the presence of God. Not only does your sin need to be removed, but you need to be given the righteousness of Christ. You need the righteousness of Christ. Let me, let me try to illustrate it this way. Imagine you're in massive debt, school loan debt, credit card debt, to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars, all right? And you have no savings. You're, you're working a job and whatever comes in is going to pay off debt. It's just, it is check to, paycheck to paycheck, okay? No savings, no nothing. Then you lose your job. And so now you're racking everything up on credit card, and come the monthly payment time when that minimum amount's due, you somehow scrounge the money to pay off that minimum, right? Imagine that's where you're at. And someone comes to you and says, I am going to pay off your debt completely. The hundreds of thousands of dollars. So effectively, before this, your bank account, your net worth is minus hundreds of thousands of dollars. Somebody says, I'm going to pay it off. And they pay it off. And you say, that's amazing. Guess what? That is amazing, but you're still in trouble because now your bank account is zero and you don't have a job, right? You, you don't have any resources to live off of. In the same way, Christ pays your debt. He pays the debt of your sin so that it's gone. But if, that all, if that's all that happens, you're still stuck. You have no resources to live off of. That's why you need the, the wealth of the righteousness of Christ, which is what justification is. That yeah, your debt's gone and now your bank account is, is filled to infinity with wealth, right? The only reason that you can stand in the presence of God is if you're, one, your sins are removed, yes, but two, if you have the righteousness of Christ. You see, that, another way to say it is this. Jesus didn't just die for you. He lived for you. You don't just get his payment of your sin, you actually get his perfect life. 
and you need his perfect life, him fulfilling every last dot of God's law for you to stand in God's presence. And Paul says here that if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, you're not justified. You can't be in God's presence. You're still in your sins. That Jesus' resurrection is what delivers you not only from sin, but gives you his righteousness. And uh, delivery from the old is useless or pointless if there's not an embracing of the new. Death of your sin, death of the old, it being buried is great, but it means nothing if there's not embracing of the new and living with the resurrected Christ. So number one, Jesus' resurrection overcomes your sin. Number two, Jesus' resurrection, he rose from the dead to overcome evil. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, what is first fruits? It was a, a, a term in Israel's history that was just sweet. It was this. It's an agricultural term. And it was that first sheaf of grain that would be harvested in a field. And that first sheaf of grain would represent more of, it would signal more of the same to come of the same kind. I'll say it this way. If you plant a tomato garden, okay, first fruit is that first red ripe tomato that you pull off the vine. And that is a signal that there's more of those to come of the same kind. Jesus' resurrection is first fruits, meaning his was the first resurrection that is signaling many more to come when he returns, when your body is brought out of the grave of the same kind, which means the same resurrected body Jesus gets that you will get. Okay, it's a first fruit. Now, what's the significance of this? It means this, that Jesus' resurrection was an event in history of cosmic significance. Israel, God's people, they had a concept of resurrection in the last day. Jesus' resurrection brought the end times forward into the present because Jesus rose from the dead into a body that could never be, never experience death and corruption again. It was the birth of the new world. It was the end times being brought forward into human history, marking the birth of new creation. You know, we, our culture is fascinated with the apocalypse, end times, right? I mean, look at all the movies that are put out that speculate what the end of the world is gonna look like, right? All the catastrophic events, we could sit here and name a handful of movies. Our fascination with the apocalypse, right? Jesus' resurrection was apocalyptic. When he came out of the grave, something significant happened. That was the moment that the new world, new creation, his new body was birthed and it was first fruits, meaning that one day there's gonna be a bunch of resurrections to follow, all those that are in Christ, right? Now the question is, what's our part in this? Or how do we experience this? Look at verses 21 to 22. For as by a man came death, 
By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, this is so significant. Last week, I spent a good bit of time talking about Jesus as your substitute. Christ died for our sins in your place, not as an example, right? Substitute. Well, here, Paul picks up Jesus as representative. And what he's describing here is this. You and I do not stand alone. That you and I are represented by someone either Jesus Christ or Adam. It says in Adam, all die. What that means is that when you come out of the womb, you are separated from God because you inherit Adam's sin. That what Adam did in the garden, you did. Now you throw your hands up and say, oh, wait a minute. Unfair. That is unfair. I did not do that, Adam did it. How am I held responsible by what Adam did in the garden when he rebelled? That response, very common, especially in our culture, in our Western, very individualistic culture, we we push against that idea of representation. Here's the irony though, As, as individualistic as we think we are, our culture is woven with the fabric of representation. I'll give you an example. Our culture's obsession with sports. What happens when a field goal kicker, as time expires, yanks the kick wide left, right? Has a chance to win the game, but yanks the kick wide left. Who loses? Not just that field goal kicker, but the entire team, right? The entire team is credited with loss or Uh, A baseball player steps up in the ninth inning, bottom of the ninth, two outs, hits a a walk-off home run to win the game. Who wins? Not just that player that hit the home run, but the entire team. The entire team is credited with the victory. Now, I could run that analogy through the business world. I could run that analogy through our political world of representation. Representation is woven in the fabric of our world and our culture and who we are. It says this, that if you're in Adam, that you experience the defeat of Adam. And as I said, everyone born into the world is born in Adam. Every last person on the face of the earth is born represented by Adam, meaning they, we experience the defeat of Adam. Not everyone, though, experiences the victory of Christ's death and resurrection. The only way that you experience the victory of Christ's death and resurrection is if you turn to him and trust him. Now, let me, let me illustrate this with an Old Testament Bible story. Pretty, pretty good, well-known one, should I say. David and Goliath. Little David, who would become king of Israel, fights mighty Goliath, right? With a sling and a stone. I was reading this story to my son uh, the other night. And we're reading through it. And he goes, he goes, Daddy, was Goliath bigger than you? (laughs) I said, son, a lot bigger than me. But I'm so glad you think I'm big. That makes me feel good. 
right? Little David fights mighty Goliath with a sling and a stone. Now, what's the common interpretation of that story? Common interpretation is, go be like David and fight your Goliaths. The problem is that we're not David in that story. We are the scared Israelites that are cowering in their tents, paralyzed, unable to move. David is a picture of Christ. When David wins the victory and beats Goliath, what do all the Israelites do? They come out of their tents, they're jumping up and down, right? They're sharing in the victory, right? David's victory was Israel's victory in the same way. Christ's victory is our victory. Christ is our representative. We share, right, the victory of Jesus Christ. Christ's victory becomes ours by faith. Now, let me apply this. There's a, there's a trend circulating in our culture right now, and it's especially at the new year, that says, pick a word or pick a characteristic that's gonna be what, what's gonna mark your year, right? So you pick joy, right? And this year, 2019, is about you mustering up joy in all the experiences you're gonna encounter. Right? Or pick peace, right? Uh, peace is the word for the year. So, so I'm, gonna, I'm gonna embody peace in, in, face, in, in the face of all the chaos that I, I experience. Now, here's, here's the danger of that. The danger of that is that it becomes a little bit like, go be like David and fight your Goliaths. The danger is that it becomes a, a, an act of independence, where it's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be joyful, or I'm gonna be peace, and, and, and man, I, I mean, God's gonna help me, but, but I'm gonna go do that. Paul has a very different approach here. Right, Paul has a different approach in verse 22. In verse 22, right, in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul says, attach yourself to Christ by faith. Get to know Christ. Make that your 2019. To know Christ, and as you get to know Christ, and as you get to know him as your representative, then you share in his joy. Then you share in his peace. Then you share in his self-control. Then you share in his love. Then you share in his victory. Paul goes on to speak of Christ's victory, his defeat of evil. That we participate in now, but that comes in full at his second coming. Look what he says in verses 24 to 26. And this is after, after the resurrection of all those who belong to Christ. Paul says in verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, we don't oftentimes think of death as an enemy. We think of sin as an enemy. We think of evil as an enemy. We think of Satan as an enemy but we oftentimes, we don't think about death as an enemy. In fact, in the, in the problematic view that the Corinthians had that Paul's addressing here, death wasn't an enemy in that cultural common belief in Corinth. Death was actually an aid. Death was an ally. Because when you died, 
That was liberation. Your soul was liberated from this evil body that would get buried and annihilated, right? Death was actually an aid. And in that view, you overcame evil. Listen to this. You overcame evil by becoming more spiritual and less human. You overcame evil by becoming more spiritual and less human to get away from this evil body. And Paul is actually arguing for just the opposite here. In verse 27, it says, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. You say, well, how is that just the opposite? It's a quote from Psalm 8, 6. And Psalm 8, 6 is talking about Adam as, a, as representative of humankind and of Adam being given the task to rule over God's world, to take care of God's world. He failed miserably. What, what Paul is saying here in verse 27, quoting Psalm 8, 6, is that Jesus Christ is the new Adam, that he came to do what humanity was called to do from the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, perfectly. That Jesus here is reclaiming what it means to be human, to be fully human and to rule over this world and take care of this world and to steward this world as God has called humanity to do. And so what we see here and what it means is that we don't overcome evil by becoming less human and more spiritual. And I will just, I will say it and I will warn you that there are tons of philosophies out there, a number of the major world religions that say overcoming evil is becoming spiritual and immaterial. There are, there are teachings within the Christian church. In fact, you can go to Christian bookstores and you can find them. Books that basically say to overcome evil, you need to become hyper-spiritual. Hyper-spiritualness or, or, or hyper-mysticism and become less human. And Paul's saying that is no different than what the problem was in the Corinthian church in the first century. The answer is no, because Jesus came as a human being, fully human to overcome evil. And we in Christ are to press into our humanity to become more human and to become human the way God has designed it. Not to become more spiritual and less human. No, the answer is to become more human in Christ. To become more human. Why did Jesus rise from the dead? First, to overcome sin. Second, to overcome evil. And finally, to overcome despair. The opposite of despair is hope. And Jesus talks about the, or Paul talks about the hope of Jesus' resurrection here in two situations in life. The first is hope in the face of death. Look at verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, this is a notoriously difficult verse to interpret, and there are a lot of views of what this means. That, that on behalf of the dead, it can, it can be translated for the dead or for the sake of the dead, but what I believe it means, I, I believe it, and it's the, the tightest description here that, fall with, that matches with the verses that follow is this, that there were those in the Corinthian church 
that faced death with confidence and with joy, knowing that their bodies were gonna be raised from the dead because Christ's body was raised from the dead. And there were people in and around that Corinthian community that watched some of these people die and, and face their death with such confidence and no fear that it led them to put their faith in Christ and to be baptized. And what Paul's saying here is, listen, if you no longer hold the confidence that those people that you look to that had confidence before death, if you no longer hold their confidence in being raised from the dead, then why did you get baptized, right? Baptism without resurrection means nothing, right? Baptism without resurrection means nothing. Paul goes on to say in verse 31, I die every day. In verse 32, what do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, right? What Paul's saying is, if there's no resurrection, then why in the world would I risk my life? I mean, just do the logic. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then why would you do anything that would shorten this one life you have on earth? Right? Why would you risk anything? If this is it, and if this is it, you're gonna go, well, I, wanna, I wanna prolong this as long as I can because this is it, right? That's what Paul's saying here. There's no resurrection. Then why face death with confidence? Why risk your life? But the reality is Jesus did rise from the dead, which means that you can face death with confidence, knowing that you will one day, because you're in Christ, rise from the dead. Your body will come out of the grave. Gospel says this, that when you die, you fall asleep. That's the language of the gospel. You don't die, you fall asleep. And the imagery there is beautiful. You fall asleep only to wake up in the presence of Christ. And that when Jesus returns a second time, your dead body in the grave will be reunited with your soul in a glorious body, first fruits, just like Jesus for eternity that can no longer be touched by death, sin, or corruption. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's why you can face death with confidence. If you're in Christ, if you're in Christ. Second situation Paul speaks about the hope of the resurrection speaking into is hardship, difficulty, and trouble. Look at the end of verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's a quote from Isaiah twenty-two thirteen. And here's the situation in Isaiah. God's people were being attacked by a foreign army. Their country was being devastated. And they basically said, we're going down. The ship is sinking. And so we got a few moments left, let's live it up. And you know what Israel did? You know what God's people did? They slaughtered cattle, they ate meat, they drank a lot of wine, and they indulged in sin because they threw in the towel. Despair had hit, defeat had hit. Hey, before we go down, let's make the most of the last of it. That's what was happening. So Paul's saying here, listen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, eat and drink, make the most of it, right? Have you ever been in that situation where the, the going has gotten so tough or the resistance is so heavy or the, the treading is just so slow? The going has gotten so tough that you just wanna crack open a bottle of wine 
or two or three or four, right? You just want to numb the pain. Despair sets in. I'm going down. I'm going down in a fire, right? Despair sets in. And, and look at Paul's response to this in verse 34, right? When, when, when despair sets in and we just want to eat and drink and be merry and, and just live it up because we're, we're just done, throwing the towel in, Paul says in verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor. Maybe literally wake up from your drunken stupor or figuratively wake up from your drunken stupor. Do you realize what you have in the resurrection? There is hope in the midst of your despair. You feel like you're at the end of your rope and despair is so palpable. Jesus has risen from the dead. Paul goes on in verse 34 to describe why this kind of behavior happens. So you think about that behavior of when despair sets in and I just want to eat and drink. Paul says, you know why that happens? Look what he says here. For some have no knowledge of God. Now, this is a sobering statement because Paul is speaking this to the Corinthian church. He is speaking this to those who have professed faith in Christ that belong to the church. What does he mean for some have no knowledge of God? What he means is some have no knowledge of a personal God. No knowledge of a relationship with God that, 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 that faith has just become belief in some deity that's out there, but there's no functional, dynamic relationship with God and with the risen Christ. It's why Paul says in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ, not know about Christ, not know the history of his life. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection because it's a dynamic relationship with the risen Christ that when the despair of life hits, Christ overcomes that despair. Christ overcomes your sin. Christ overcomes the evil that touches your life when you're in relationship with a risen Christ. Several weeks back, there were circumstances in our life that had put a ton of tension on our family and on our marriage. Just the, you know, those, that moment of despair when it hits, and I'll just tell you, we got to a point where I didn't have to imagine what Paul meant in verse uh, 34. I didn't have to, or what Paul meant in verse 32, let us just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It was that kind of moment where you just, despair is thick and heavy. And what I did in that moment is I, I retreated. I retreated into isolation. And I'll never forget what, what Kim said to me in, in, in the midst of that. She said, Keith, when you are engaged with me, when you are present, when I know you are in it with me, my anxiety and stress and need to control the situation disappears. Now, when I'm not engaged and I'm not present and I go into isolation, guess what? We're still married. We're still married. Albeit, it's a marriage of coexistence. It's not a marriage of intimacy and connection. And that, there are two different kinds of marriages under the guise of legally being married. You can be married and coexistent. And you can be married and connected and intimate. 
In the same way, the scriptures talk about the risen Jesus Christ as our bridegroom. There's a vertical marriage that the Bible talks about. And our marriage to Christ can be one of coexistence, where in, in, in real functionality, it's, a, it's independence, it's isolation, we're doing our thing. Parallel tracks, you can have a marriage of, of coexistence or a marriage of connection and intimacy with Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying here, is that some, some don't have the knowledge of God. Right? If, if you don't have a dynamic relationship with Christ where you're seeking to know him, then all the victory of Christ, you, you, well, you'll fail to experience. So here's the truth. Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He had, if you're in Christ, this is what's true. He has overcome your sin. He has overcome the evil that touches your life. He has overcome your despair. But you experience that at a heart level when you are seeking to know him. Paul in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And the more that you know him and get to know him through his word and through prayer and through his people, then the more you experience that victory of his, victory over your sin, victory over the evil that touches your life, and victory over the despair that so easily sets in in a broken world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess our complacency. We confess in, in many ways our, our relationship to you, to the risen Christ, is something more about coexistence than about connection and intimacy and dependence. It's, it's more about independence than dependence. Father, we confess because we know it, that when we operate that way, we, Jesus, we know you're victorious, but we don't experience it. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you grab hold of our hearts? Would you soften our hearts? Would you draw us to repentance and to, to nearness to the heart of Jesus? That all the truths that we know we have in you, Jesus, as the resurrected one, overcome, overcoming our sin and evil and despair, that we wouldn't just know it intellectually, we would know it functionally in our heart. I pray for those specifically here. There are some here that have gotten to the end of their rope with despair. Maybe gotten to the end of the rope with their sin or maybe evil and injustice that's pressing in. Oh, Father, would you by your spirit draw them near? Jesus, would you be near that at a heart level, they could know your presence and know your love. Father, as a people, we would pray what Paul calls the Corinthian church to here in verse 34. Would you wake us up from our drunken stupor? Would you wake us up to what we have in your risen son, Jesus Christ? Would you wake us up to the reality that the new world, the new creation has already birthed 2,000 years ago, Jesus, when you came out of that grave. And would our lives today reflect that we belong to a new kingdom and we serve a gracious and loving king, Jesus. Father, as we close in worship now, would we sing as those who have been woken up?
We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.